Welcome to Daily Chumash Summaries. I wrote these summaries in memory of my beloved paternal grandfather, Usher Zelig Ben Meir Halevi Zichronali Racha, and recently I decided to put these into an audio format as well. If you'd like to be added to the email list so that you can receive these summaries in written format, please send me an email to itistaught at gmail.com, or else you can follow the link in the show notes of this episode uh, to be added directly. There's also an opportunity to sponsor an episode of this podcast, which you can do by visiting itistaught.com and then clicking on the link that says support this project. So if you have a, a loved one's yort site coming up or a birthday or for whatever other reason, if you'd like to uh, support me in the work that I do so I can continue doing this kind of work, please consider sponsoring an episode. And finally, if you enjoy this podcast, please consider checking out my other podcast, the It Is Taught podcast, where I focus on the daily Tanya portions in a way that is meant to be down to earth and relatable and accessible to all. And with all of that being said, let's get into today's Chomesh portion. Parshas Kitisa, second Aliyah. So today we're going to talk about the golden calf and its aftermath. So the Chumash now relates the incident involving the sin with the golden calf. While this event occurred months before the construction of the Mishkan, and you've been, if you've been following along, we've been talking about the Mishkan in the, in the last couple of Parshas. Um, nevertheless, the Chumash does not always follow sequential order, as we see an example here. So to get a sense of more of the actual timeline of when these things occurred. The breaking of the tablets after the sin of the golden calf occurred on the 17th of the month of Tammuz. And then we received the second tablets after Hashem forgave us uh, for the sin of the golden calf on Yom Kippur, which was on the 10th of Tishrei. So a few months after Tammuz. And then the following day, we began giving donations towards the Mishkan, which was then erected on the 1st of Nisan. So it was quite a number of months later since the sin of the golden calf to the actual erection of the Mishkan. So here's how it happened. On Mount Sinai, Moshe learned the entire Torah from God and received the two stone tablets written by the hand of God, which were identical in size. He attained the closest possible relationship with Torah that one can have, likened to the relationship between a bride and a groom. This analogy of a bride and groom can also be understood in two other ways. The first way is that since Moshe was unable to learn the entire Torah in such a short amount of time, it was given to him like a gift, the way that a bride is given to a groom. The second reason why it's like a bride and a groom relationship is that just as a bride wears 24 ornaments, so should a Torah scholar become an expert in the 24 books of the Tanakh. So now we're going to understand how the sin of the golden calf actually occurred and the miscalculation that happened um, along with it. So whilst ascending the mountain, Moshe told the people that he would be back at the end of 40 days within the first six hours of the day. What Moshe meant by this was that it would be 40 full days, meaning 40 days, including their nights. And Moshe ascended the mountain on the 7th of Sivan during the day. So the fact that he ascended during the day meant that the night before, which was the night of the 7th of Sivan, was not included in the count. So meaning if you were to count 40 full days since then, then the 40th day would, was, would technically be the 17th of Tammuz. 
you can pull out a Hebrew calendar to look that up. So what happened here is that the Jews made a mis miscalculation. So Moshe ascended on the 7th of Sivan, Sivan like we mentioned, um, and we know that Hebrew Hebrew days start with the night count. But in this instance, because he ascended during the day, then that night before, meaning the seventh of Sivan at the, the night, the eve of the seventh of Sivan was not included in the count, but the Jews didn't realize that. So they counted from the seventh of Sivan up until 40 days later, which was on the 16th of Tammuz. And after six hours had passed on the sixth day of Tammuz, the Satan arrived and confused the people with images of darkness and gloom. So as part of this confusion, they misunderstood the count and thought that it had started the day Moshe ascended, and thus he was due to, overdue to be back by then. Even though, yes, it did it did start when he ascended, since it was during the day, we had to count a full you know day's worth, meaning to say that really the day was not over until that night, which would be the 17th day of Tammuz. All of this confusion led them to believe that Moshe had died on the mountain. In this state of confusion, they approached Aaron and asked him to make deities for them to worship, as they felt that only gods would be able to replace the guidance which they got from Moshe. So something to note here is actually, uh, it wasn't just regular Jews initially who were involved in the sin and who approached Aaron. It was actually the mixed multitude. They're known as the mixed multitude, or in Hebrew, the Erev Rav, who approached Aaron for this. And only after doing so did they then persuade the rest of the nation to join. So who are this Arab Rav? The Arab Rav were actually a bunch of uh, Egyptians and other types that joined the nation of Israel when they left Egypt. So, you know, while they were accepted into the Jewish nation and, you know, um, they did receive the Torah along with the rest of us, they weren't a part of this like original like Israelite tribe, basically, is the way that we can think about it. And throughout our history, we actually see that this Arab Rav actually made a lot of trouble. And here's one example of that. So now, okay, so they approached Aaron, and then Aaron came up with a pl plan to delay the people's scheme, hoping that in the interim, Moshe would return. Aaron told the men to gather gold from their wives and children's earrings, thinking that the women and children would not be willing to part with their jewelry so readily. The men, however, were so eager that they quickly donated their own jewelry towards this cause. So Aaron took all of this golden jewelry and melted it together to form a golden calf. Aaron then built an altar and declared that the following day would be a quote-unquote festival to God, or in Hebrew, Chag Lashem. His purpose in doing so was to delay the worship of the calf until the following day, giving Moshe time to return before then. He also elected to build the altar himself so that he could dally in the work and it would take longer. He knew that if he delegated it to the people, they would cooperate and have the altar built much faster. Now, a Midrashic understanding of this is uh, looking at this word in the Hebrew, you know, and he built an altar. In Hebrew, that's the wording of that is vayven, Mizbeach, and that word vayven can also mean, it can mean build, like built an altar, but it can also mean understand, he understood. So the Midrash interprets this to mean that Aaron understood, like he saw what was going on and he understood something. He, what, what did he understand? He knew that um, he witnessed the people kill his sister Miriam's son Hor when Hor tried to rebuke them, and this was a reference for that. Also, he understood something else. He reasoned that it would be better if he were to be blamed for the altar rather than the Israelites. So he opted to take the blame for this. 
Okay, now the following morning, the Satan made it so that everyone arose very early and began committing sins of sexual immorality and killing. Hashem says to Moshe that he must descend, for his nation has become degenerate and is worshiping a golden calf, as if that is the God which took them out of Egypt. Now, Rashi explains that uh, that Moshe must descend can be understood in a literal sense, but it can also be in the sense of descending in a spiritual sense, since Moshe's whole greatness was only in so far as the Israelites were great. So since the Israelites were now in this lower status, Hashem was telling Moshe that he needs to descend from his high status. Another interesting thing that Rashi points out is that the wording is very specific, is that, that Hashem says to Moshe that he should go back to his nation, meaning to Moshe's nation. And uh, and Rashi points out that this is uh, this is a reference to the heir of Rav, who Hashem refers to as Moshe's nation, since Hashem never agreed to them joining the nation, but Moshe's, Moshe insisted that it was a good idea to have converts join with the Israelite nation. Hashem says that he sees that the Israelites are a stubborn nation who refuse to listen when rebuked. He tells Moshe not to pray on their behalf, and or for if he does, Hashem will be forced to listen to his prayers. Rather, Moshe should not pray, and Hashem will make Moshe a leader over a great nation. Kind of insinuating, you know, that it'd be a different nation. Moshe pleads with pleads with Hashem to reconsider these negative thoughts against the Israelites. What will the Egyptians say? Moshe asks rhetorically that you took this nation out just to kill them. Also, he says, Hashem should not get angry on account of this due to Hashem's strength. Moshe reasons, a wise man should only be jealous of another wise man, for example, or a strong man of another strong man. So he's basically saying that, you know, this is, it's kind of petty things for Hashem to be upset about. Moshe calls on the merit of the patriarchs to save the Israelites. He reminds Hashem that Avraham was not yet rewarded for the 10 tests which he passed. The 10 commandments which were engraved on the tablets could serve as this reward. Furthermore, each of the patriarchs suffered an experience which could be considered in lieu of any punishment Hashem would impose on the Israelites. And now Rashi gets into some specifics of what this means. So, uh, for example, if Hashem wanted to punish them, punish them by being burned in fire, he should remember how Avraham was willing to sacrifice his life to be burned for God's sake in Ur custom. If Hashem thinks that they should be killed by the sword, he should remember Akedat Yitzchak, the, uh, the sacrifice of Isaac. If Hashem wants to punish them by exile, he should remember Yaakov's exile into Haran. Furthermore, Moshe reasons, if the Israelites are not able to redeem themselves in the merit of the three patriarchs, how would Moshe, who's just one person, be able to hold an entire new nation? Moshe also reminds God that God had promised himself rather than any finite material objects to the patriarchs. All of this caused Hashem to reconsider punishing his people as he had planned. So Moshe began his descent from the mountain, holding the two tablets, which miraculously were engraved in such a way that whether one looked at them from the front or from the back, the letters appeared in the right order, in spite of the engraving going all the way through the tablets. So think about that for a moment. Like, you know, if you had, um, like, if you took a piece of paper or any kind of material and you cut out the letter B in it, let's say, you know, so that there's like a big hole making the letter B. If you were to look at it from one side of the paper, it would look like a letter B. But if you were to look at it from the opposite side of the paper, it would look like the, you know, an inverted B. But in this case, this was a miracle that no matter which way the people were standing, even though the commandments, you know, went all the way through, the letters went all the way through the tablets, they looked exactly the same 
it was readable from whatever uh, place you saw them. And this was because these tablets were made by Hashem and written by the hands of Hashem. Yoshua heard the people frolicking and making a lot of noise and told Moshe that there was a voice of battle in the camp. Moshe replied that the voices did not sound to him like victory cries, nor like cries of surrender, but rather distressing cries of blasphemy that would disturb anyone who heard them. When Moshe saw what was going on, all of the frolicking and the golden calf, he broke the tablets in anger. He surmised, if regarding the eating of the paschal sacrifice, it is stated that a stranger should not eat of it, and this is just one of the Torah's commandments, all the more so should the entire Torah not be given to these people who are considered as quote-unquote strangers due to what they were doing. Moshe then took the golden calf, burnt it in a fire, ground it up into a fine powder, mixed it in water, and made all of the Israelites drink it. The idea of this forced drinking was to test the Israelites, similar to how a sota is tested, a wayward woman, which is spoken about elsewhere in the Chumash and in the Gemara as well. There were three different things being tested for, each liable for a different death penalty. The first was that if there are witnesses who see a person worshiping an idol and he is warned yet does not desist, he is liable to be killed by the sword. Secondly, if there are witnesses but no warning, the idolater is liable to be killed by a plague. And thirdly, if there are no witnesses nor warning, the idolater is liable to be killed by a disease called dropsy, whereby the stomach distends. This was similar to how a sota would die. Moshe asks Aaron what kind of suffering the nation imposed upon him to coerce him to participate in such a sin. Aaron tries to calm Moshe down, telling Moshe that he knows that the Israelites always test God. He then proceeds to tell Moshe how the event came about. He says that he asked them to donate gold and threw the gold into the fire. Aaron thought that a simple metal object would emerge and the Israelites would be underwhelmed and lose interest in their scheme. Aaron did not realize that a lively calf would emerge. Aaron exposed the disgrace of the Israelites, such that far into the future, other nations will know this embarrassing story about the Israelites and the golden calf. Moshe stood at the entrance to the camp and called out, whoever is for God, come to me. And all those from the tribe of Levi came to him. From here, we learn that the tribe of Levi remained untainted by the sin. Moshe commands these Levites to kill the rest of the nation by sword. So the Levites did, and 3,000 men died that day. Moshe declares that this act made the Kohanim, who were from the tribe of Levi, were worthy of being the ones to perform the sacrifices in lieu of the firstborns. So originally, the firstborn sons were the ones that were supposed to be act as the Kohanim in, uh, you know, all the do all the duties that we associate with Kohanim in the Mishkan and the base of Magdash. That, that was supposed to be done by the firstborns. But here, this is when the switch happened, even though the switch only came into effect once the Mishkan was erected. The following morning, Moshe tells the people that they have done a grave sin and that Moshe will speak to God to see if he can cleanse them of it. Moshe approaches Hashem and says that while it's true that the Israelites performed a grave sin, Hashem put a stumbling block in front of them. He was the one who supplied them with so much gold. Moshe likens it to a king who gives his son a purse full of money and hangs it around his neck and stands him at a brothel. Can we really expect the son not to sit in such a situation? Moshe says that if Hashem is able to forgive them for their sin, then fine. If not, he requests that Hashem erase Moshe from the Torah so that the people may not say that Moshe was not worthy enough to ask Hashem to have mercy on his people. Hashem says that he will erase whoever has sinned against him from his book. He concedes that he will not destroy the entire nation then, but rather any future punishment that is meted out to them shall include a penalty for the sin of the golden calf. 
Hashem now tells Moshe to return to lead the people. Those who had committed the sin and had witnesses but no warning were then killed by a plague which came from the hand of God through an angel that God sent. Hashem tells Moshe to ascend to the land of Israel. And Rashi points out, you know, the specific wording here. First of all, this idea of ascending to the land of Israel uh, is it's because Israel is considered to be the highest of all the lands. And also, just as before, you know, going back to earlier, when we talked about Moshe descending, Hashem telling Moshe to descend from the mountain, and Rashi interpreted that as as well as descending from a spiritual stature um, before when Hashem was angry. Now that Hashem is appeased, he's telling Moshe to once again ascend. Uh, another thing to notice about this is that, he, you know, before when we we're talking about the descent, Hashem made a reference to his people, meaning to Moshe's people. And we said that that was the heir of Rav. But here, um, it's just a reference to the people, Ha'am, the, la- the people that you took out of Egypt. So meaning all of the Israelites, uh, not just the heir of Rav, but all of the Israelites, which who were Hashem's people. Hashem now says that he will send an angel before the Israelites who will drive out the following six nations from the land of Israel. So what are the six six nations? That's the nation of the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Chittites, the Peruzites, and the Chivites, and the Yavusites. Originally, Hashem had mentioned that there would be seven nations to drive out, but the seventh nation, who were the Girgashites, left on their own. Hashem says that the land that he will bring them to will be a land flowing with milk and honey. Hashem says that for their benefit, he will send an angel to bring them there. For if Hashem were to go himself, he would get angry from the stubbornness of the Israelites and annihilate them. When the Israelites heard that the divine presence would not be traveling with them as a form of punishment, they were instructed to remove the crowns that they had received on the Mount of Horeb when they had originally said the famous, we will do and we will listen, Nasev and Nishma. Uh, at that time, they um, they received crowns. And so now they're told to remove those, those crowns. So they remove the crowns. Since Hashem banished the Israelites, so to speak, Hashem's student Moshe also banished them by pitching a tent outside and far away, 2,000 almost away to be specific. Um, and it was 2,000 almost away from the camp. And then Moshe called this tent, which Moshe pitched 2,000 almost away from the rest of the camp. He called this tent the tent of meeting, or in Hebrew, Oel Moed, and this is where anyone would go to who sought God. We had referenced the Oel Moed when we had spoken about the Mishkan in the previous Parsha. So Rashi has a, makes a note here that uh, what we learn from here is that anyone who seeks out a Torah scholar, it is as if they are seeking out God. Since in going to seek out Moshe in this tent, they were considered as if seeking out God. Another explanation is that even the ministering angels, if they sought out the divine presence, they were told that it is to be found in Moshe's camp. Whenever Moshe would walk from the camp towards the tent, everyone would rise and would not sit down until Moshe entered the tent. When Moshe would arrive at the tent, a pillar of cloud would come down and stand at the entrance of the tent, and Hashem would converse to himself with Moshe listening. And this was done out of respect for Hashem, for God. So to show respect to God, so as not to say that Moshe and God were on the same level and were conversing as such, rather Hashem spoke to himself and Moshe listened in. When the nation saw this, everyone bowed from their tent in that direction, directing their prostration to the Shekhinah, to the divine presence. 
The Chumash now says that Hashem would speak to Moshe face to face. However, my understanding is that it was still in this way of Hashem speaking to himself and Moshe listening in. Uh, and then Moshe would return to the camp and teach the elders what he learned. This practice occurred from Yom Kippur just up until the Mishkan was erected, but not beyond that. Yoshua, who was Moshe's servant, never le left the tent. Okay, so now getting back into a timeline now here, just to understand the timeline of these things. We spoke about it a little bit in the beginning, but a little more detail here. So the 17th of Tammuz is when Moshe breaks the first tablets. The 18th of Tammuz is when Moshe burns the calf and judged the sinners. The 19th of Tammuz is when Moshe ascends Mount Sinai and spent 40 days asking Hashem to have mercy on the Israelites. And then Rosh Chodesh Elul, which is the month after Tammuz, Hashem told him that he would go up again and spend another 40 days there to receive the second tablets. And then we come to uh, the 10th of Tishrei, which is the month after, it's the first month of the year and it's the month after Elul. And the 10th of Tishrei is also Yom Kippur. And on that day, Hashem said that he totally forgave the Israelites and gave them the second set of tablets. And Moshe came down the mountain and Hashem started to give him instructions regarding constructing the Mishkan. And then they went about in constructing the Mishkan. And then from that time, from the 10th of Tishrei up until the 1st of Nisan, which was several months later, the Mishkan was erected on the 1st of Nisan. From this point forward, Hashem only communicated with Moshe from within the Oal Moed in the Mishkan. Thanks for listening to my Chumash Summaries podcast. If you liked this podcast, please consider subscribing on Spotify or iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And please consider also checking out my daily Tanya podcast, the It Is Taught podcast. Uh, it's also found on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions or any feedback or comments or anything like that, feel free to reach out to me at it is taught at gmail.com.